Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Gus DeRay is a name not familiar to many, but it should be, especially college football fans. In fact, had Gus DeRay decided to take the head coaching position at Notre Dame instead of moving on to smaller schools, there's a chance many of us might never had heard of Newt Rockney. So, who was Gus DeRay? What made him so special? And why is his legend not on the same level as Rockney? Stay tuned, because next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the legend, yes, legend, of a great college football player and one of college football's most innovative and greatest coaches, Gus Dore. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome again to Sports Forgotten Heroes, where every other week, we go back into the annals of sports and talk about the heroes of the game whose names and accomplishments have faded away. And today, a perfect example of such a hero, the great Gus DeRay. And joining me in just a bit will be two terrific guests who have written a book about Gus. Gus DeRay, gridiron innovator, All-American, and Hall of Fame coach. A very accomplished author, Joe Neese, who has also written books about Burley Grimes and Andy Pafko, and is co-author for this book, The Grandson of Gus, Bob DeRay. We're going to cover a lot, and we'll be jumping around too, as there is so much to the story of Gus DeRay. First, just a quick reminder, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, look for our page on Facebook, or check us out on the web at SportsFH.com. There you can read more about our guests, more about the heroes we talk about, and we have links to videos about our forgotten heroes as well. That's SportsFH.com. In fact, we have a lot more on SportsFH.com about Gus DeRay as well. You know, Gus coached in college football for 27 years, and he compiled a record of 150 wins, 70 losses, and 12 ties. He created the football programs at Dubuque and Gonzaga. And after his career as the head coach at the University of Detroit, he moved up to the NFL and took over the helm of the Detroit Lions and coached them for five seasons going 20-31-2. and Duray starred at quarterback for Notre Dame. In fact, as a sophomore in 1911, Duray led the team to a 6-0-2 record and was named captain of the Fighting Irish for the 1912 season 
and led Notre Dame to a 7-0 mark. In 1913, DeRay again led Notre Dame to a perfect mark of 7-0 in a season in which the Fighting Irish outscored its opponents by an incredible margin of 169-7. to Yeah, you heard that right, 169-7. to of course, while DeRay was gaining a ton of accolades, there was another star on the team, Newt Rockney, and he plays a very large role in the story of Gus DeRay. The two spent four years together in South Bend and were roommates for all four years. And the stories, oh, the stories. You're going to hear about some of them over the course of today's edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Like I said, there's so much to cover. And let's not forget, DeRay was a terrific professional football player as well. In fact, he and Rockney played for the historic Massillon Tigers. Now, if you have a reader in the family and or a sports fan and you're looking for a great gift for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever holiday you celebrate at this time of year, I suggest visiting Amazon or GusDeRay.com. That's G-U-S-D-O-R-A-I-S.com and getting a copy of Gus DeRay, Gridiron Innovator, All-American, and Hall of Fame coach. It's really a terrific book, and it's incredibly thorough. Now, without further ado, let's get on to my conversation with the book's two authors, Joe Neese and Bob Doran. Joe, Bob, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you both could be here. Well, thanks for having us. So let's start here. How did you find each other, and how did you go about working on this terrific book? Well, I could, I, for starters, I, you know, I, I was working on it for a little while, and I kind of ran into a, a dead end. And you know, my previous books, I had, you know, worked with a close family member or friend, and I was scouring the internet and came across this old message board from Ancestry.com from the late '90s, and there was an email address on there emailed it and they, I think they got a hold of Bob and Bob reached out to me and uh, it kind of went from there. Well, Bob, if you want to talk about how we worked on things. Yeah. So once we connected, which was about four years ago, uh, when we first talked, Joe had said, you know, I had made some progress. I want to do this book. And I said, well, funny enough, <laughs> I've been researching this for a long time and I have part of a book written but I'm not a good writer. So, uh, it was a, it was a good match. And then a couple of years ago, we really shifted into high gear and started on, on the, uh, manuscript and some further research and finding photographs and that kind of thing. Joe, where did your interest in Gus come from? Mine comes from, I, I live in Chippewa Falls, Gus's hometown. And so that was the beginning of my interest in it. Uh, the football field here is Dory field. Uh, it's a place I had played in high school, played there, played a few games there. And so um, I was looking for my next subject, and there it was right in front of my face in my hometown. And Bob, to grow up in a household with the name DeRay and being related to Gus, you must have heard a lot of great stories about him. Well, funny enough, Warren, it, not really. Uh, <laughs> I heard a few. But uh, it really wasn't a thing that was talked about a lot. 
Now, my grandmother uh, had a house nearby that we would go over occasionally, and she had a spare bedroom with some pictures and a few magazines and articles and so forth. And I always ran into that room and just stared at that stuff for hours. <laughs> um, and that really, really is about the exposure I had to Gus. Interesting. Where did your interest come in trying to write a book about Gus? Why was that important to you? Okay, well, uh, as I mentioned, you know, going to my grandmother's house was one thing. And then near right before she died, I visited her quite often, and she would talk about Gus a lot, which she never had in the past. And after she died, I thought, huh, I really should find out more about this. So I started going to used bookstores and buying old football books and Spalding football guides and, you know, that kind of thing. And just one thing led to another, and it just really picked up momentum and snowballed from there. Hmm. Well, I got to tell both of you, when I mentioned it to a few people that I've interviewed previously on Sports Forgotten Heroes that that I was going to do a podcast about Gus, they were they were quite impressed, and they're really looking forward to hearing all about Gus DeRay, who was obviously a pretty good athlete, and he wound up at a school that was not originally on his radar, Notre Dame. How did he wind up there? Go ahead, Bob. Well, yeah, that, as you mentioned, that was not his original uh, school. He actually wanted to play at the University of Minnesota. And when he got up there, uh, they took a look at him. You got to keep in mind, uh, Gus was a very uh, small guy. Even back then, he was all 5'7", maybe 135 pounds when he got out of high school. Uh, Kind of a tiny guy. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, back then it was all brute force football. Mm -hmm. And when he showed up at Minnesota, they said, no, you're way too small. (laughs) Uh, and that was that for Minnesota. And then just by chance, uh, he talked to a couple of people that put him in touch with somebody at Notre Dame and they invited him down there. And the rest is history. It really is history. And of course, if you read the book, you're going to find out that his roommate for all four years at Notre Dame is one of the most famous names in the history of sports, Newt Rockney. Will one of you please tell us a little bit about their first encounters and just how well they got along? It was like it was almost a match made in heaven. Sure. Well, you know, when he he got on Notre Dame campus, he kind of had a similar experience as at Minnesota. He got there and uh, Shorty Longman was Notre Dame's coach. And he had had, him and Doré had had this supposedly cordial um, correspondence leading up to Doré showing up on campus. And Dore came face to face with Longman and he kind of got the same treatment he got at Minnesota. Longman gave him a once over, said, you know, thought he was too small, kind of sent him on his way. And, you know, Dore had taken this long train ride down to uh, South Bend from Chippewa Falls and he, you know, was really discouraged by it, but he got his room assignment, a, a subway room or a basement or subway room at Soren Hall. And he shows up there, opens his door, and he meets uh, his new roommate, a 22-year-old Norwegian immigrant uh, from Chicago named Newt Rockney. Hmm. Well, he and Newt really hit it off. I mean, 
again, from what I read, they were quite, well, let's say resourceful, especially when it came <laughs> to earning and or scheming to make some money. I'm going to play a little word association with the both of you in regards to this. Would you tell me what comes to mind when I say candles from the grotto or candlelight poker games? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a famous story, and it's very true. Uh, yeah, they they were a very popular room, as you can imagine. Uh, they were both well-liked, and they were in a corner room in Corby Hall, which backs right up to the grotto on Notre Dame, which is a very famous location on campus. And they would hold after-hour poker games, and, of course, they had to do it by candlelight, and the grotto was full of candles, so they would sneak out, grab a bunch of candles, and uh, bring them back to the room and play all night. <laughs> How about this? Rigging a screen so teammates could pay a fee to leave the dorm after hours. Yeah, that's another one, uh, another one of their schemes there, and uh, it eventually blew up in their face. They, <laughs> you know, they're uh, making you know a little income from that, and someone got so tired of it that they ended up you know stacking all sorts of things outside their room afterwards, outside the window, which their the hall uh, the hall father saw the next day. <laughs> what about radiators? Can you tell me anything about radiators? <laughs> yeah. So when, when they got a little uh, older, let's say uh, a little wiser as sophomores and juniors, they came up with another scheme. They'd go to the freshman dormitory, the freshman hall. And back then those rooms, the only way they were heated was by radiator. So, they would knock on the door and ask the freshman if you uh, paid your radiator rent. And <laughs> freshman would say, what do you mean? And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you got to pay radiator rent. And uh, and if you don't pay, we're going to shut off your heat. And, you got, and the freshman would protest about it. And Rocky would be dressed in overalls with a, with a hat and a big pipe wrench. And he'd come in. And he'd start, you know, making noise with the wrench on the pipe and <laughs> fake like he's shutting it off. And freshmen would panic. He's okay, okay, here's the money. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a scheme that uh, made him a lot of money for, for a while. Quite resourceful. Last one for word association. And this one was really legitimate. Cedar Point. Tell me about Cedar Point. Sure. So Cedar Point was kind of a, a rite of passage for uh, Notre Dame students. Uh, it's a... Uh, amusement park uh, down in Sandusky, Ohio. And so they're just become a tradition of uh, in the summer, Notre Dame uh, students going down there, working, earning money for uh, school the next year. And so Rockney and Doré, like all classmates, went down there and that's where they spent their summers. For, um, and, you know, it's kind of the, the legend goes, that's where the forward pass was invented. Of course, uh, you read the book, that's that's far from the truth there. Mm -hmm. They kind of fine-tuned their skills down there, not just Rockney and Doré, but uh, their teammates as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that paints a really good picture of how well Gus and Newt got along and really was the beginning to a lifelong friendship. But now let's just take a look at Gus for a moment. He was quite the quarterback, but the road to becoming 
the starting quarterback at Notre Dame, well, it wasn't an easy one. The coaches, as you said earlier, thought he was too small, and they didn't like his throwing motion. But darn if he didn't win, and he won at an alarming clip. How did he become the starting quarterback at Notre Dame, and what did he have to overcome? Well, as Joe mentioned, you know, when he, he, he first showed up, they took one look at him and said, they, you know, you're too small. And they kind of relegated him to the practice squad. And by a series of injuries and uh, other things that happened to the story, at one time there was actually three quarterbacks ahead of him. Hmm. And uh, But he really uh, showed his stuff in practice, and it was noted by a couple of uh, writers and about, so he got into a little bit of play in the first few games of the season in 1910. Uh, but then due to some injuries, like I mentioned, uh, on the, at the, at the fourth game of the season, uh, he was made starter and, uh, he just, from that moment on proved what a tremendous athlete he was and especially a fantastic passer. So from that point on, he played until uh, he graduated and never lost a game uh, as a starter with Notre Dame. Wow. How instrumental was he in the development of Newt Rockney? I I, I think that, uh, I think, you know, being roommates and teammates, I, you know, I, I think Rockney came in there with some, with raw ability, had some skills, um, he had played as a receiver as a receiver in high school. Uh, he was actually initially put in a, as a fullback this mm-hmm. freshman year, and then uh, eventually ended up as a receiver, and you know, kind of went from there. But I think their rapport. Dore was this very confident, quiet, confident guy. Was a big leader. Uh, Rockney was kind of unsure of himself at first, and I think kind of fed off Dore and kind of grew into the person he became uh, and helped because of Dore. Mm-hmm. How dominant were those Notre Dame teams that DeRay and Rockney played for? Oh, very. If you look at uh, year-by-year scores for the four years they were there, you, you see some ridiculous scores like 69 to nothing. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. that they, they were all big wins. I mean, there was a few close ones, too. You know, by the time they got to their senior year, they really got some big name uh, teams on the schedule, uh, not the least of which was Army mm-hmm. in that famous game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, yeah, they had a they had a few close ones, but for the most part, they just took apart everybody. How much credit should Gus be given to the dominance of those Notre Dame teams? I I think, you know, he wasn't a one-man show by any means, but like I said, he was kind of the leader of those teams. He was a a captain his junior year, um, and I I just think that the players really fed off of him and his confidence, you know, being such a a slight guy, small guy, but just this huge personality and huge confidence. uh, Well, not being a cocky guy, but very confident that they really fed off of him. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, when you look back at those teams, of course, the one name, and it could be due to the fact he became such a legend after his playing days, Newt Rockney, with all of that, with everything that DeRay did, 
Why do you think the name Gus DeRay is one that so very few know, that so very few have ever heard of? Why is that? Why do so many people not know the name Gus DeRay? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I think it really boils down to Gus himself. Um, I mean, he did get a lot of uh, press at the time when he was playing. Uh, he was Notre Dame's first consensus All-American. Uh, but after that, he ended up in, uh, at a small college in Dubuque, Iowa. And for the rest of his college coaching career, it you know, he stayed at small schools and he loved that challenge. Mm-hmm. He went from Dubuque to out to Spokane to Gonzaga and then ended up at the University of Detroit. And they're all relatively small student bodies. And he just loved that challenge. So he never really had a program that got a lot of press, uh, unlike Notre Dame, Army, Harvard, Yale, you know, all the big teams back in the day. Mm-hmm. Not, not that they didn't. Ha- he, the other thing, though, he had opportunities. He was courted almost every year. He was, they tried to hire him at Michigan State, uh, Cornell, you know, all these big, big universities, but he preferred the smaller programs building, building them up and, and developing players mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In, the, in those schools. He was a terrific quarterback, but he was somewhat hampered by the rules of the game, one of which was you couldn't pass the ball more than 20 yards. But this all changed in 1912. In fact, several rules were changed. A fourth down was added. The field was reduced from 110 yards to 100 yards, and end zones were added. Passes caught in the end zone, which prior to 1912 were ruled as touchbacks, were now ruled to be touchdowns. Touchdowns were now worth six points instead of five. But the biggest change, at least from what I read, was this. You could now throw passes more than 20 yards beyond the line of scrimmage. Just how crucial was this to the development of Gus DeRay as a quarterback, and why did this help him more than most quarterbacks? Well, I think it was, you know, he, he'd gone through three different coaches while he was in college, and uh, Jack Marks, who was his coach in his sophomore and junior year, really laid the foundation for that Notre Dame offense that became so famous. But the opening up of those, as you mentioned, as you mentioned very well, all the, all the things that changed there in 1912. Uh, but a lot of those, you know, as Bob said, those East Coast powerhouse teams, they still weren't using the pass. Mm-hmm. And so when, um, when Notre Dame shows up at West Point there in, in November of 1913, the pass was still a, an act of desperation. Hmm. But Notre Dame had been using, you know, it was just part of their offense. And so, you know, Notre Dame put on their show there with a couple long passes um, and to uh, Rockney and Gusserst. And uh, so they kind of uh, showed what the pass could do and not just be an act of desperation. What was the football like back then? I did a podcast way back when on Benny Friedman and the ball was not the same shape as the ball we know today. How was the ball or what was the ball like back then? And how did that affect quarterbacks in trying to throw the ball? Well, it was a little more uh, round. Um, 
and a little like a little fatter, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it did affect them. In fact, the, uh, going back to the last question, uh, connecting it with this question, you know, uh, the technique of throwing the pass um, was different as well. Right. Uh, I was first thrown uh, underhand, kind of like a discus, and the ball went end over end. Hmm. And then the next uh, uh, evolution in the pass was to still throw it underhand, but to hold it in the palm of your hand and spin it to get the spiral. So a lot of the pass pattern, because of the rule restrictions, were short, and those techniques were fine. But Gus was one of the first uh, in the country, if not the first, to adapt the overhand spiral throw, like a throwing a baseball, and the way you see footballs thrown today, mm-hmm. which is quite an accomplishment if you think about the size of the ball and how how round it was. So, uh, yeah, he he practiced an awful lot. Uh, throwing that ball. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Where did his ability come from to learn how to throw the ball, and how did he improve doing that? You know, I I think it started on sandlots of Chippewa Falls, and there, there's a, this real passing lineage that that happened with um, within the state of Wisconsin, starting at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and so um, you know by the time Gus was in high school. In his senior year, he transferred from the Catholic high school to the, the public high school, and his coaches were A.G. Finley and uh, Charles Coots Cunningham. Finley was an All-American halfback at Madison, and Cunningham was a quarterback. Cunningham was a Chippewa Falls guy. And so I kind of think that maybe when Cunningham came home and breaks, he maybe showed them that pass a little bit. And, you know, Gus was a, you know, a strong-arm shortstop and pitcher when he, you know, when he was playing baseball. And so that, you know, integrating that that pass into football didn't, wasn't too hard for him. Mm-hmm. He was just an all-around great athlete, at least from what I read in the book. I mean, there wasn't a sport that he couldn't master. He was also a great runner and a great drop kicker. So he could beat you in many ways. And Notre Dame played its own version of the shift, which at first wasn't accepted by the players. Eventually, though, they came to like it. It was actually called the Notre Dame box. Would you explain it to us and just how it worked? Go ahead, Joe. Well, the Notre Dame box, the shift was, it was a, like a lineman shift would shift before and the backs would, uh, would also, um, you know, there'd be some movement in the backfield as well. And it kind of changed from year to year. Um, like I said, Marks came in, he had came from a small school, and um, integrated his offense in it, you know, the players didn't really like it very well, as you, as you said, and we alluded to in the book. And then they just they kind of saw what was taking shape and accepted that offense. And then Marks improved on that as well. And then Rockney and Doré improved on that as well. And so that came to be the Notre Dame offense. Why was Notre Dame so successful with it? What about it caused fits for the opposing defense? I'd probably the the way they ran it and their 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 level of comfort with it, and that you know, of course, we're talking about the subject here, but I, I think it's you know Doré's confidence in it and the way he he went about um, running that offense. So obviously, he and Newt had a terrific time at Notre Dame. The Fighting Irish were really a dominant team. 
But after playing at Notre Dame, Gus and Newt were basically asked to choose between themselves as to who would stay on at Notre Dame as an assistant to coach Jesse Harper, and the other would move on to become the head coach elsewhere. DeRay acquiesced, let Rockney take, take the assistant's job. Tell us how Gus and Newt made the decision. Ultimately, I think, a decision that would seal the legend of Newt Rockney and a decision that would send DeRay onto a terrific career, but not with the notoriety and fame that Rockney enjoyed. How did they arrive at the decision for Newt to stay and Gus to leave? Yeah, that's... There's a famous uh, story that circulates around that, and it has to do with a coin toss. And it basically comes down to they flip the coin to see who would stay at Notre Dame and who would go to an opening at uh, Dubuque College uh, or, or the other way around, however you want to look at it. But in reality, the coin toss never happened. And... <clears throat> What a, they, they both were offered it, and they both talked about it. And actually, Rockney was uh, was going to get a job. He had a job lined up in Kansas to teach at a high school, I believe, and head coach. And uh, DeRay had been offered this job in Dubuque, but it still was up in the air. And then uh, in July, I believe, Rockney uh, was married, and that's when Gus decided, look, you, you need this, a good, good paying job. You need stability. Oh, I'm sorry. I left that important part. The the (laughs) job in Kansas fell through for Rockney. So he was sitting there with nowhere to go. So that's when Gus said to him, look, you need this job. Yeah. You're starting a family. uh, And I have an opportunity to be, you stay here at Notre Dame and I'll go up to Dubuque. Wow. I mean, when you think about that, the paths that these two guys took and how different they could be, we could actually be doing this show right now about Newt Rockney and how no one knew or no one knows who Newt Rockney was and Gus Ray <laughs> is the most famous of all. Yeah, that could be, although, you know, Warren, uh, I don't think Gus had the right personality to take Notre Dame to the level that Rockney did, mm-hmm. uh, which is a complete reversal of when they were in school. As Joe mentioned, you know, Gus was the confident uh, one of the two and, and spoke well, but very quiet. And Rockney was he didn't like to speak in front of people not good at giving speeches and but he grew out of that and of course he became a phenomenal coach speaker uh, motivator the whole nine yards and in fact when Rockney died uh, about a year after they had coaching problems and things didn't work out and they invited Gus down as a candidate for the head coach but uh, from what we can ascertain I, I i think it was more out of uh politeness and i think the alumni were screaming at notre dame to hire gus as the head coach but he just did not have the personality to run a program like that he's just hmm. too you know quiet and humble of a guy hmm. 
But one thing he did want to do was play professionally. So he leaves Notre Dame and he goes on to Dubuque. And after a slow start, he quickly turns the program around. In fact, under DeRay, Dubuque went 19-9-2, including a 7-0-1 campaign in 1916. It was also at this time that he began his professional football career as a, we'll call it, a weekend player for the resurrected Massillon Tigers of the Ohio League. How was he able to balance teaching at Dubuque, coaching at Dubuque, and by the way, he also coached basketball and track at Dubuque and play professional football? How was he able to do all this at one time? Bob and I, you know, last we were just together a couple of weeks ago here in Chippewa and we were talking about this and we have no idea how he, he managed all this <laughs> to often be, you know, coaching a game on Saturday in Iowa and hop on a train and go to Ohio, you know, the, and be playing the next day on a, you know, a train that, you know, wasn't going that fast, you know, and, you know, he, on there all night and that was their first game that him and Rockney played in uh Maslon. They arrived in town the morning of and showed up at the hotel, the team hotel. So I don't, I don't know how we managed all this and to do it successfully. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that first game uh, for Massillon was against the Canton Bulldogs. And it really surprised a lot of people. He and Rockney, who was also a weekend player beat Canton and the legendary Jim Thorpe, one of the greatest athletes of all time, they beat the Bulldogs 16 to nothing. DeRay was playing quarterback. He went 7 of 19 for 119 yards, scored a touchdown, and booted three drop kicks as well. Of course, this wouldn't be the last time Gus would face Thorpe. And we'll get to that later. But it was the start to a significant career as a professional football player. But it was his second game that year against Canton that would be remembered for quite some time. It had a most controversial ending. Can you tell us about that game and that ending? Sure. Uh, Yeah, so the Ken Maslin rivalry was the biggest in professional football at the time and you know these are this is the pre-nfl years uh and that's why the nfl uh, hall of fame is in canton by the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so these were the two big these were the two big teams and the second uh game was played in canton and it was a very close game and it got down i think there was maybe 12 minutes something like that left and you have to remember back then there weren't uh, the, the the fields they played on. They had small grandstands for the most part, but uh, people would crowd around the sidelines in the end zones uh, for these games. And so what happened at this one play, Gus had uh, dropped back to pass and hit a receiver uh, right down by the goal line, and he carried it into the end zone. Now, remember, this is in Canton, so the crowd swarmed mm-hmm. uh, the Maslin player, and in a, in a few seconds later, a Canton player emerged with the ball. So they had they ruled that uh, it was not a touchdown, huh. and that ended up costing them 
uh, the game. And wasn't it later discovered that it actually was a touchdown? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so what happened was uh, when the receiver went into the end zone, uh, according to the receiver, uh, when he hit the ground, uh, a police officer kicked the uh, ball out of his hands and it <laughs> went right right over to the can player. And, but the referees couldn't see anything because the crowd had swarmed. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a police officer. It was a streetcar conductor. And years later, this streetcar conductor confessed to this uh, play. He said something to the effect, I had too much money bet on this game to let that guy, you know, get the touchdown. So as soon as he hit the ground, I kicked the ball out of his hands. And <laughs> the rest, rest didn't see it, and that was that. Gus would go on to play for another professional team, the Fort Wayne Friars, a team that was peppered with former players from Notre Dame. Now, please explain how players, it's, it was professional football, but it wasn't structured the way the NFL or the CFL or any professional league is structured today. Players could play for two different teams at one time. And how this ultimately bit DeRay in the butt. And by the way, Rockney was there by his side as well. And when DeRay had to choose between playing for Fort Wayne or playing for Massillon, it, it caused a little bit of controversy. Can you talk about that period of time? Sure. So, um, as you said, as you said, DeRay was uh, going to play. For, he was playing for both teams at the time. And so he had committed to Fort Wayne, but he'd also committed to Massillon that he would be he would be there for that game against Canton. And so he made up an excuse or an injury that he wouldn't be in Fort Wayne that weekend when he in fact was playing the the big game between uh, the Bulldogs and the Tigers. And of course, word got back to Fort Wayne, and it was a, a pretty embarrassing thing for Gus. He, he did this huge public apology in the local paper and. You know, it was one of the one of the real low points of his playing career. You know, mm-hmm. he always, you know, was really well respected, and this little took a little hit to his image there briefly. You know, while all this is going on, let's not forget that Gus was still coaching football at Dubuque, and he was coaching it really well. Tell us about the teams at Dubuque and just how good they were. I mean. They turned out pro talent too, even though they didn't play against what we would call now the Power Five schools, Dubuque still turned out some pretty good pro talent. Just how good were those teams? So, you know, it took a couple of years for Gus to finally get his offense running, but when he did, he had a lot of success with running backs in particular. And that was the thing with Gus's offense that despite him being a quarterback and throwing a lot in college, his offense is often uh, centered around a running back that could run or throw the ball. And so he finally got that in the, uh, you know, I think the, the the 15, 16 season had a real strong backfield Uh, uh, lineman Jones from Notre Dame came in and played as well. And they really dominated the Hawkeye Hawkeye conference and and won. Mm -hmm. His time at Dubuque ended quietly the U.S. joined World War I. Schools all across the country were closing down their athletic programs, and Dubuque was one of them. How disappointing was this to Gus, and where did he go from there? 
Yeah, he was disappointed, although, you know, he understood uh, at that time, just about every young man under the age of, I think, 25 or even 30, I'm not remembering right now, but uh, it was a mandatory draft registration. And then, of course, once the U.S. uh, entered combat, uh, everybody uh, was shipped off to boot camp, so... In one sense, yeah, he was disappointed that because uh, he had a great program going there, coached many uh, different sports, and was a professor. And uh, you know, he, he saw himself ha- as having a long career there. So anyway, he, he was sent off to uh, boot camp. He was commissioned uh, first lieutenant in the army, and was sent down to Waco, te- Texas. Is a big cantonment camp, which is a camp where they prepare guys to go overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't long before they knew who they had in the camp, and he was pretty quickly made the uh, camp athletic director, the camp football team manager, captain, and quarterback. So uh, they they put his talents to good use, and they uh, the different army camps around the country would play each other. And so in the fall of uh, 1918, uh, he, he played uh, several games and they claimed a mythical, you know, army championship mm. with Gus uh, leading the team. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it about this time as well that Gus wound up back at Notre Dame as an assistant to Newt and he took over as the head coach of the school's basketball and baseball programs? Correct. Yep. Yeah. He had just gotten uh, discharged from the army and was looking for something to do and he didn't want to go back to Dubuque. That wasn't really an option. And so Rockney was just uh, finishing up his first year as football coach. He was also the athletic director. And I get kind of get the impression that he might've been a little in a little bit over his head to start with. And Gus had been doing this. He was coaching all those sports at Dubuque and was doing, you know, partial AD duties and uh, Rockney called on Gus and Gus jumped at the chance to come back to Notre Dame and he took over that basketball program. Uh, Rockney wasn't a fan of basketball. And so that was an opportune time for Gus to come in there and start uh, the basketball, you know, coach the basketball program in the winter and then baseball in the spring. And he took over as a, uh, uh, assistant coach for Rockney for uh, with football in the fall. You know, just how good an athlete, how smart, how gifted was Gus DeRay? Paint a picture for us. Here's a guy who was a star at Notre Dame who somewhat revolutionized the game at the quarterback position, goes on to establish a heck of a program at Dubuque, and can also coach basketball. He can also coach baseball. And like you said early on, he was about 150 pounds sopping wet. Paint a picture for us just how good an athlete and how smart was Gus Dore. Yeah, well, 150 is maybe soaking wet with uh, all the equipment on. <laughs> he was. <laughs> He was listed at 135, 140 is the most I've ever seen him listed at. Yeah, all 5'7". Uh, but as Joe mentioned previously, you know, he, he grew up in Chippewa Falls and on the sandlots, both playing baseball and football and even some ski jumping in there in the mix. 
and I, I don't know where he got it from because it never got passed down uh, in the family. <laughs> None of us ever got that athletic ability. <laughs> you but didn't get he, that athletic ability, Bob? No, none of it. Not a bit. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he he just loved athletics. And he was, as you had mentioned, Warren, he was uh, a great passer, a great runner, a great drop kicker, and a sensational safety on defense. He, he made some amazing open field uh, tackles in his playing days, both in uh, college and pros. And during his time at Notre Dame, not only did he play football, uh, the uh, dormitories, uh, the hall teams, as they call them, uh, he played uh, baseball, he did rowing, uh, uh, just anything that, uh, uh, you know, you could think of a track. He was very good in track. Mm -hmm. So he just, he, was a nonstop sports player and it was just a gift. You know, that's, that's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was very smart. You know, he was always figuring out ways to improve uh, plays, pass routes, uh, schemes, offense and defense. Uh, And I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but in 1931, he wrote a book, which was uh, the forward pass and its defense Mm -hmm. the title. And it was pretty much the Bible at the time on on the pass in football. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he was an innovator in in a lot of areas in, in football, basketball. Um, just a, a very intelligent uh, person as well as an outstanding athlete. Bob, let me ask you this: Early on, mm-hmm. I asked you about stories, perhaps that you might have heard growing up, and you said you really didn't hear a whole lot about Gus. Why? Right. Why is that? This is a legendary athlete, a legendary coach. Why was his well, I mean that might even play into the fact that most people have never heard of Gus and yet many stories might not have been passed down to you. So that that really strikes uh uh it's very interesting. Yeah, I I think it go, goes back to Gus's personality, you know, he was very quiet uh, very unassuming, very humble. He didn't, uh, you know, he, he didn't toot his own horn, so to speak. Um, didn't look for it. And I think that got passed down to my father, Gus's son. Uh, he, he instilled that into his kids. And so they learned to be humble and, you know, not, not brag about things and tell stories and, get publicity or, you know, whatever it's, uh, so I think it really would just start with Gus and his personality. Mm -hmm. Getting back to him, getting back to Notre Dame. This is also about the time where he met someone else. Another person who is a legendary name is introduced into the life of Gus DeRay and Newt Rockney. And that would be George Gipp. What kind of relationship did Gus have with Gip? And what about Newt's relationship with Gip? How did it differ? Well, I can start this out here. I'll let Bob tell a good story about their relationship. But so when when Gus uh, started the, the football season in 1919, uh, one of the first things, actually, when they first, you know, when Gus first came on board, 
Gip was kind of handed over to him. Gus was going to be his caretaker to make sure that he was on the straight and narrow, which was not an easy thing to do. Um, and, and Rockney was kind of a, a hands-off with Gip, just let him do his thing. Doray kind of had to be the disciplinarian, make sure that he was, uh, again, on the straight and narrow, which wasn't very often. <laughs> but, um, you know, Gus was the back, backfield coach at the time, and I think, you know, helped, you know, of course, Gip was a phenomenal athlete, one of the best. Gus said, you know, behind Thorpe, the best running back he ever saw. So I don't know how much Gus had to uh, do to coach him, but uh, he sure had to do, to do a lot to corral him. And uh, Bob has a good story about having to do that. Yeah, so after the 1919 season, um, Gip, as Joe mentioned, he was uh, not easy to keep in line, and he got into quite a bit of trouble at uh, Notre Dame and he was basically kicked out of, out of school and he wanted to go too because they, they told him he couldn't play other varsity sports since he really wanted to. So Gip had left Notre Dame. Not many people know that. Hmm. And he had gone up to Detroit and he was looking to get on the university of Detroit football team up there. So when spring practice rolled around, Gus had come back from spring break walked into Rockney's office and, and Rockney jumped right up. He said, Gus, don't unpack, get on the train, get up to Detroit right now and find Gip. He <laughs> said, if you don't find Gip, uh, I won't have a job and you won't have a job. And this will be the end of Notre Dame football. <laughs> so, so uh, Gus got on the train went up there, asked around and uh, found out where the team was uh, practicing. And after the practice, he ran up to, to George and he said, look, Gip, you've got to come back to Notre Dame. He said, yeah, Gus, I'd like to, except they won't let me play there. And I've been in a lot of trouble and so forth. He said, look, it all's forgiven. You can play any sports you want. You just got to come back or Rock and I don't have jobs. <laughs> and with that, he got back on the train and with Gip and they returned to Notre Dame. And of course, Gip went on to have a very storied season in uh, the fall of 1920. Okay. So I thought it'd be neat to stop for a moment for a little sidebar about George Gip, the Gipper win one for the Gipper. Just how good was George Gipp and what actually happened to him? First, let's talk about what happened to him. And frankly, the chance of this happening today is next to impossible. Basically, he died from a battle with strep throat. Back in 1920, there weren't antibiotics. There's some significant discussion as to how Gipp contracted strep. Anything from being locked out of his dorm room after returning after curfew to giving punning lessons in bad weather late in November. Either way, antibiotics hadn't been invented yet and tragically, Gip succumbed to strep throat, maybe with a little pneumonia mixed in. Just three weeks after being named Notre Dame's first All-American by Walter Camp and he was the school's second consensus All-American, Gus DeRay was Notre Dame's first. On the field, Gip was everything and maybe more than you heard. 
He rushed for 2,341 yards on 369 carries for an average of 6.3 yards a carry. In his final year of 1920, he averaged 8.1 yards a carry, still a Notre Dame record. He was also pretty darn good throwing the ball. His best season coming in 1919 when he completed 41 of 72 attempts for 727 yards. Overall, he averaged 128 yards of offense a game, which I think is still a Notre Dame record. Now, this is also around the time that Gus was getting back into the professional game. And in 1920, he played against Canton and Jim Thorpe once again. And this is when DeRay's playing days came to an end. What happened? And before you go there, I guess Jim Thorpe just didn't like him, did he? I'll let you take it, Bobby. Do a good job of telling this one. Yeah, so just a small correction. It was the, it was the 1919 season. And, okay. uh, and, and uh, Gus was playing exclusively for Maslin. And Rockney was there, and, and on on that team, and then of course, Canton had Thorpe and a bunch of other great players. And in November, they were uh, they they both teams were were playing uh, well, and they were vying for the championship. So this was the game to decide the uh, the professional football world championship, as they called it back then. And so. Early in the game, uh, on defense, Gus had uh, covered uh, Thorpe coming out of the backfield on a pass route, and he'd fallen in behind Thorpe as he was running down the field, and he uh, tripped him from behind. And Thorpe, you have to remember, was a huge guy, Mm -hmm. even back then, uh, and even by today's standards. And uh, he fell flat on his face, and when he... uh, stood up as Gus put it. He looked like a gourd bull. Uh, his <laughs> eye was, his eye was red and starting to swell already. And his helmet was, you know, twisted and he was mad. And he told uh, Gus, he said, you watch out little guy. Don't nobody does that to me. And so Gus was truly afraid. And for the rest of the game, he kept uh, one eye on the play and one eye on four. And near the end of the game, uh, Gus, uh, called his own signal and went off tackle for, uh, you know, uh, just a, a off tackle run for a couple yards. And he had said, he says, that's the first time during the game I'd taken my mind off of Thorpe. As Gus was laying down right after the play stopped, Thorpe took a, uh, running leap and with both knees landed square on Gus's lower back. Oh, yeah. And, uh, of course, that knocked him out of the game. And subsequent to that, uh, uh, it was discovered that uh, he had damaged kidneys from, from that impact. And he, he was in a, a back brace for several months, a body cast um, kind of thing. And that, that was it for him. That, was, that pretty much ended any chance of him ever playing pro football again. The game, However, let me just yeah. quick, let me quickly add, though. Uh, Gus never held animosity towards Thorpe. And as Joe had mentioned, he rated Thorpe as the all-time running back in football. 
football was a lot different back then. Um, players could get away with dastardly moves like like what Jim Thorpe did. Did Thorpe sure. ever say anything about that? Did did it bother Thorpe that he ended Gus's career that way? Was there ever a conversation between the two? Does anybody know of anything that ever happened again between Jim Thorpe and Gus Doré? Mm, no, I, not really. Uh, like I said, years later, you know, Gus was asked about it several times, you know, during the rest of his life. And every time he, he came back, he said, no, it was just a hard play. Uh, Thorpe is a fantastic player, the best I've ever seen. And, uh, that was it. I think that was just the style of play in those years, Warren, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, uh, there was a lot of brute force, rough housing, uh, punches were thrown, you know, th- jumping on guys, I think was pretty common. So I don't think it was looked at, uh, like it would be today. I mean, if you saw that, it would be on ESPN and, you know, people would be screaming bloody murder right. over it and, uh, that kind of thing. But back then I think it was pretty commonplace and, uh, it was just, a, a you know, tough play for Gus and, but no, he never, he never talked to Thorpe about it. Mm-hmm. Well, this was also around the same time that Gus's career as a coach was about to take a monumental turn, and he ended up at Gonzaga. How did he get there? And speak of Gonzaga's relationship with Notre Dame as well. So, yeah, they had, being a Catholic institution, they had some reciprocity there, and Gonzaga was looking to uh, make a splash in college football, as were a lot of Catholic institutions at that time. And they uh, initially actually, you know, we just got done talking about Jim Thorpe. They offered the job to Thorpe, and he turned it down, and he became the uh, the first commissioner of the NFL. But uh, Dory was their second choice. They offered it to Gus, and Gus jumped at it. He was looking to get back into uh, head coaching duties, athletic director duties. And so he headed west to Spokane and uh, started his journey there and back being a head coach, implementing his office, his, his office style of offense there. And uh, similar to Buke, it took a couple years, but finally, mm-hmm. it finally clicked in 1922. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges did Gus face in trying to build a program at Gonzaga? I think it was the, the numbers. It was a small, small, uh, just a couple hundred students at that time. Um, not very well known football, you know, had not that East Eastern brand. And then it was slowly spreading West hadn't reached, reached the West coast that much as of yet. And so, as I said, you know, it took a couple years. It was finally clicked when, uh, uh, Houston Stockton came in in 1922 and, uh, kind of, you know, was, that was the beginning of a couple good years for, uh, Gonzaga. Mm-hmm. He really liked it out there, didn't he? What did he and his wife, Viola, like so much about living out there? Well, one of the things uh, about Gus, coming from the north woods of Wisconsin and Chippewa Falls area, was he was an outdoorsman. And in particularly, he was an avid fisherman. And he just generally liked the woods and camping and that kind of thing. So, of course, uh, the Northwest Washington state was, is, is a beautiful part of the country and mm-hmm. offered all those kind of things to him. So, 
Uh, yeah, he, he loved the environment. How much did he love coaching at Gonzaga? And tell me about probably the greatest victory he had at the school was a game against Washington State. How much did he like coaching at Gonzaga? And tell me about that game against Washington State when he finally beat them. So I think that was, was that the 22 season, Bob? I can't remember now if that was. No, uh, 23, I think. 23, yeah. And he finally beat and so, so he, you know, I, I think he loved coaching at Gonzaga, and there was a, a real, it was a difficult for him to leave that area. But, um, you know, just especially as he was just starting to get the program shaped how he wanted to. But, you know, Washington State was their biggest rival, and so I think it was the, the first or second game of the season where he finally broke through, and that was, I think, one of his more memorable victories of, of all of his was that win over Washington State and finally get that win. You know, the 22 season was great. They made it to a bowl game, almost beat West Virginia, but they still hadn't beat Washington State yet, and they finally did in 23. Mm -hmm. Why did he leave Gonzaga? Well, he uh, he was noticed uh, out west and what he was doing with that program. And in Detroit, again, a Catholic institution, so it was kind of – I think someone once referred to it as a Catholic mafia, all these universities. They're <laughs> all connected. And, um, you know, they wanted a name coach and a quality coach. And they knew about Gus in his playing days at Notre Dame. And the couple of years he was at uh, Notre Dame with, as an assistant to Rockney. So they made a hard play for, for Gus. And Gus had started a family in Spokane. He had a, a child by 1922 and another one on the way. And Gonzaga couldn't really, I mean, he paid him a decent salary, but they couldn't pay him what he could get at, at uh, Detroit. So I think that played into it. And actually, Vi, his wife, uh, fought tooth and nail not to go. Right. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, there was a, a lot of activity. I think in 1923, there was a lot of telegrams back and forth between Detroit uh, and Gus and Rockney. Uh, they got Rockney in the mix to try to convince him. And he felt terrible about it. And then everything stopped for a while, for a year. And uh, he was going to stay. And then UD came back, University of Detroit came back and, and pressed hard again. And finally, they, they talked him into it because I think in, at the end of 1925, his contract was running out with Gonzaga anyway. Mm -hmm. So it made a little a little easier for him to leave. But, uh, yeah, he it, it was a very, very tough decision for him because he had built that program from basically nothing to, uh, you know, one of the – uh, elite programs out west. And I think that's really a tribute to just how great a coach Gus was because not only did he build Gonzaga into a terrific program, he basically had to build a football program at Detroit from scratch. He and and from the way you guys describe it in the book, he really enjoyed this. And just like 
at Gonzaga, he wound up with one or two players who really defined his time at Detroit. Tell us about his time at Detroit, particularly about building the program and that great, great 19-game winning streak. Sure. So when he came there in 25, there had been a real, you know, they hadn't had any consistency. And similar to Gonzaga, they were trying to make that splash in, in college sports, particularly football. And they brought Gus in and you know, he, he had a, a, a tough couple first years, 25 and 26, but that 27 team really took off um, behind uh, Tom Connell, who was also from Chippewa Falls, and Lloyd Brazil as well, a guy uh, from Flint, I think Lloyd was from. And um, they actually they lost to uh, Rockney and Notre Dame early in the, the 27th season, the one and only meeting between those two, between Doré and Rockney. Um, got, uh, Notre Dame shut them out 20 to nothing. Hmm. And then the following week, they began their 19-game their winning streak and 22-game unbeaten streak that stretched from 27 to 29, including a 9-0, and 28 uh, season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, that it, it was once again getting that backfield that he mm-hmm. desired. You know, again, it, it took a couple years, and he needed a back that could both run and pass the ball. He had two of them in Connell and Brazil. And didn't other teams really start to fear Detroit? I mean, Gus was a smart coach, and he was building this huge program, uh, uh, you know, a very renowned program, and it sure it sort of shot Detroit into the national spotlight, did it not? How did Gus and the football program affect the school's popularity? Sure, yeah. So a, they were pretty unknown when he first started there, like Joe had mentioned, those first couple seasons. And then he got Army and Notre Dame onto his 1927 schedule. And they only lost Army 6 to nothing. In that first game of the year, and then as Joe mentioned, twenty to nothing against Notre Dame, and the the game was pretty close. It was a lot closer than the score reflected. Uh, they they were stopped uh, short on on a couple drives, right down by the goal line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think what happened out of that was uh, here's a small Catholic school playing a couple big big time programs like that, and it kind of put the fear into. Uh, some of the bigger schools, like in the Big Ten and elsewhere around the country. In fact, um, I, I think it was an Army football coach who once told Gus, said, look, I'm not putting you on my schedule. You're too good because if you beat me, I'll lose my job, <laughs> plain and simple. And if we beat you, nobody will care because you're a small school. Right, and I think that kind of mentality was uh, kind of felt throughout the country with a lot of the bigger programs. They just they knew Gus was you know uh, a master with the four pass game and could beat any team on any given Saturday, and they they just didn't want to uh, you know have have a loss to the University of Detroit, the small Catholic school. Uh, you know, as a blemish on their program. So, yeah, he did. He had a lot of trouble scheduling uh, big-time programs. 
How was or why was Gus so much better than his fellow coaches? What was he able to do to recruit the better players to go play for him? What was it about his coaching style? What made Gus such a good football coach? I can speak briefly, and Bob can as well here if I've got anything to add. But, you know, he, it was a, a difficult haul for him, especially in, in Michigan, where you're, you're going against University of Michigan, who was a huge program then and still is, obviously, but, you know, Michigan State. And, you know, he got some players that weren't really on the radar of other other um, colleges, but then he saw something in them. And, and Gus, he wasn't a yeller. You know, didn't chastise people, wasn't a big speech maker. When he did do a speech, you knew, you know, it was a big deal. And so I, I think they really respected his perspective on the game. Of course, his his resume was, you know, huge, and they respected that as well. But the way he conveyed the game to people, I think, really, really resonated with them. Mm-hmm. All through this, his time at Gonzaga his time at Detroit, his relationship with Rockney was still really something. And even though they were rivals on the field, they still helped each other out with the respective teams. They really were best of friends. Just how important was that friendship? And and how, what kind of a, I mean, how devastating a blow was Rockney's death, not just to Notre Dame, not just to football or the world of sports, but to Gus. Just how much did Newt Rockney's death affect Gus? Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, they were uh, obviously roommates, teammates, friends. And uh, after Gus had left Notre Dame the second time, they stayed in, in touch and uh, they conducted summer uh, coaching clinics for other coaches around the country together. Um, when Gus brought Gonzaga uh, East to play the University of Detroit, uh, they stopped off in Notre Dame and scrimmaged with uh, Rockney's team. In fact, Rockney <laughs> lent them jerseys to go play up in Detroit because they didn't have the right color jerseys. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, they they – were together uh, during the off season quite a bit. And so when Rockney uh, died in that tragic plane crash, uh, Gus was completely gutted by it. And um, so he kind of took up the mantle to continue Rockney's legacy. Um, he gave many speeches uh, he was constantly down at Notre Dame at uh, alumni functions, football banquets. Uh, he made the dedication to the Rockney Memorial Building in, in, at Notre Dame. And uh, until Gus died, he he just would always, um, you know, sing the praises of, of Rockney. Mm-hmm. But I think it did affect him quite a bit because, you know, Everybody wonders just how, you know, how much more Rockney could have done with, with Notre Dame. And, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, yeah, he was, he was deeply affected by it. Do you think had Notre Dame offered Gus the job to be head coach immediately after Newt had passed away, 
Do you think Gus would have left Detroit and gone on to coach Notre Dame? I I don't think so, Warren, because it, at the time, I think uh, was it Hunk Anderson was his assistant coach mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, the program was running pretty strong. And I think they and they did. They gave they handed the reins over to Hunk Anderson, who was in his own right, a fantastic football player from Notre Dame and legendary in his own right. And so if there was consideration at the time, I, I, I don't know um, anything about it, but it t- only took another, I think, couple of years and the program really uh, suffered at Notre Dame. There was a lot of problems. In fact, they brought Jesse Harper back mm-hmm. to take over temporarily. And, and that, at that time, as I, I mentioned this earlier, is when they uh, contacted Gus to come to Notre Dame for an interview for mm-hmm. the, the position. But I think really it was out of courtesy and out of the alumni demanding it that they did that. And even Vi um, uh, didn't want him to go. In fact, when, when Gus was on the train down there, he stopped about halfway in Michigan, uh, Southern Michigan, and called called back home. And Vi pleaded with him, says, "Don't take the job, please. Don't take the job." So, and as I mentioned before, I think it was out of courtesy, and he just did not have the right personality to take over the program that Rockney had built up to that point. I mean, it was legendary. It was covered by all the press. Movies were being made. Uh, I just don't think Gus was the right person for that. Isn't it amazing how good a coach you could be, but sometimes your personality doesn't permit you or allow you to coach at such a prestigious institution like a Notre Dame or an Alabama or an Ohio State that sometimes you're just better fit for working at a school that doesn't have as much notoriety or is as big. And really, Gus excelled at smaller schools, Dubuque, Gonzaga, Detroit. Some of these schools don't even have a football program anymore. So Gus coached at Detroit for so long, but wasn't it a struggle with fellow professors in regards to his salary, trying to schedule bigger schools, and then financial difficulties because of the war. So wasn't that part of the reason Gus finally gave up and actually did move on to a bigger program? The Detroit Lions, a professional football team. And he didn't meet with great success there. What happened? Why did he leave Detroit? What was it that his fellow professors or fellow faculty just didn't like about Gus that forced him to give up his job at Detroit and go on to coach the Detroit Lions? Well, it, it, it was, I don't think it was any disdain for Gus. There was issues in the, the early 30s with his salary because of you know the uh, Depression era stuff. And Gus actually... Um, didn't take salary for some of those years and was going to get paid back on a back end deal years later, which he never got. 
And so it actually ended up forcing Gus's hand to leave was World War II. And as he said, uh, you know, Loris College, as an aside, Loris, or Dubuque College, now Loris is the only one of Gus's schools that still has a football program mm. that he coached at. And so um, it was just kind of an opportune time, at, you know, during World War II, uh, University of Detroit was going to drop their program. Um, the Lions had been after Gus for years to coach, and he finally took the leap. And I think a little bit too late in his coaching career to, mm-hmm. to do that, but he found success during the World War II years. Uh, the 45 season, he was 7-2, and two, but then uh, stumbled the last two years there in 46 and 47. Was some of that due to off-the-field distractions? And I hate to use a word like distraction when you're talking about a child tragically drowning. Um, but that's what happened. The last few years of Gus's life were tough, maybe even somewhat depressing. He passed away in 1954 from ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. What were those last years like for Gus, and how should we remember Gus Doré? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, uh, his uh, youngest son, drowned in uh, the summer of 1947 prior to the last year he coached the Lions. Just to back up a little bit, the problems with the Lions, uh, and it was problems with several other teams in the NFL at the time, uh, were a lot of players were lost to the war. And so, you know, the rosters were, were kind of thin. And at the same time, a new football league was started, the All-America Football Conference. So, right. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of competition for uh, professional football players, and on top of that, the owner of the Lions was uh, a private owner, single guy. Uh, he had, in the last couple of years, had some financial difficulties, and he made some roster moves based on salary that uh, were not optimal for for the Lions. So all those things played into the Lions struggling his last couple of years. And then, of course, uh, leading up to his uh, son uh, accidentally drowning in a lake in Michigan. In fact, um, one of his uh, beat writers that was very close to Gus uh, saw him the next day, and he wrote that he saw a middle-aged man change into an old man overnight. Wow. Uh, So it – yeah – it it deeply affected him, and so the '47 season was pretty awful for the Lions and and for Gus, professionally and personally. And so by December of '47, the Lions and Gus parted ways. And so Gus, he want he he sort of wanted to remain in football, uh, but he also kind of wanted to retire, try his hand in business. And uh, so we actually ended up doing both. Um, he scouted a little bit uh, um, for for several teams, kind of a freelance scout. And then he was hired by uh, one of his former players, Ray Flaherty, as a scout for the New York Yankees football team. And then subsequent to that, the Chicago Hornets football team. Mm. And at the same time, he opened up a uh, car dealership in Wabash, Indiana with his son. And so he had his hands in a lot of things, a lot of different things, uh, post Detroit Lions. 
And in fact, in 1952, he was brought in to uh, help his former assistant with the Lions, Joe Bach, was now head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was brought in to um, teach the uh, or help with the T formation, which most teams had already switched to from the single wing. So, you know, that was his last uh, foray into football in 1952. And then, but during the 40s, and especially after his son drowned, uh, until he died, his health really started failing rapidly. Mm-hmm. And he he died a relatively young man. He was mm-hmm. only 63. Mm-hmm. You know, guys, your book, Gus DeRay, Gridiron Innovator, All-American, and Hall of Fame Coach, does such a good job at diving in in thorough detail about the life of a true legend. I mean, that's really what Gus DeRay is or was a true legend and you know had he become coach of notre dame instead of newt rockney like i said earlier we might not even be having this discussion but we are because that's the kind of life that gus wanted to lead was working at the the we'll say smaller schools to go through your book in depth and concentrate on every single little detail is virtually impossible. And that's why I decided to craft this podcast in the way I did with touching on a bunch of different points. I want to ask both of you this. What was the most difficult hurdle you had to overcome in writing this book, I mean, there's so much information. Well, I'll go first. Well, Joe Ponders. <laughs> For me, you know, I started out, as I mentioned, you know, talking to my grand grandmother right before she died. That really kind of got the ball rolling for me. And and so in the early 90s, I started doing a, you know, a lot of research. And at the time, of course, there was no Internet. And. Uh, I started traveling with a young family vacation mm-hmm. in Michigan. I live in Pennsylvania and we, I, I ended up going to the pro football hall of fame, uh, different, uh, local city libraries where he played, uh, universities, uh, all these different institutions and going through microfiche and, you know, copying things out of that. And, uh, so, uh, that that was difficult back then, and mm-hmm. and the, probably the biggest difficulty for me after that was trying to write the book. Uh, I I'd written I don't know maybe a third to a half of the book, and I am not a writer, I'm not <laughs> an editor. I just it's awful. And let me just say that Joe Nice was uh, a godsend uh, for the Gusta Race story. He, he he really took the ball and ran and ran hard and fast with it and really did a fantastic job finishing off the book. Very cool. Joe, how about this? Let me ask you this question. What surprised you most about Gus DeRay? What did you learn about Gus that surprised you most? Well, I, boy, I, I don't know if I could pinpoint one thing because re- really the whole story was new to me. Um, you know, I, I'm forever thankful that I I found Bob on that, like I said, that old Ancestry.com webpage from the late 90s. I don't know how else him and I would have made contact if it had huh. not been for then. And so, 
and you know, being my third book, I, I always, like I said, I always found that one person, that one family member that made it go. And once Bob, I mean, once we made contact, we've just clicked so well, we get together, we, you know, we get along so well and kind of think the same way with writing. And so it was just such a treat to be able to write this story with him, a family member. And, uh, by far my most, uh, I don't know, just the best experience I've had of my three books, the most rewarding. Well, that's awesome. Joe and Bob, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your evening to join me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. The book is terrific. I had never heard of Gus before, and I learned so much, and I think both of you did a terrific job. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Warren. Really appreciate uh, you having us on, and uh, and uh, glad you enjoyed the book. And I hope other folks uh, will too. To me, it's amazing how making a decision on which team to coach could have such a profound result on one's legend, especially back in the early days of college football. While it's impossible to know if Notre Dame would have become the powerhouse it did had DeRay decided to stay in South Bend as opposed to going to Dubuque, one thing is for sure. Gus DeRay had just as big an impact on football as did Rockney, only Gus did it at a much smaller school, and that certainly affected his legend. But in the end, Gus DeRay is a legend. And I sure hope this podcast helps bring to light all he did for the game. And if you want to learn more about the great Gus DeRay, visit GusDeRay.com. That's G-U-S-D-O-R-A-I-S.com. Pictures, video, stats, and more. And of course, you can order the book, Gus DeRay, Gridiron Innovator, All-American, and Hall of Fame Coach by Joe Neese and Bob DeRay. And I'd like to thank both of them for stopping by for this terrific conversation. And by the way, their book, well, that would make a great present for any sports fan this holiday season. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.